Uh, we're going to take you on a little journey in the Word today. Um, I love talking about Jesus. This has felt like a Jesus weekend, like the kind of weekend where you're just supposed to minister Jesus stories. So I don't want to disappoint today. I want to minister another of those moments where Jesus talks to us, gives us his story. And I want to take you to one this morning. If you'll meet me in Matthew 13, I want to take you to a story, a, a, a literally a parable of Jesus. We dealt with a parable last night, uh, commonly called the parable of the sower. Um, I want to deal today from Matthew 13. If you actually ran the, the reference last night, we were in the book of uh, Mark, the fourth chapter, but if you ran the reference, the sower parable also appears in Matthew 13. So I want to go into the Matthew version, not of that parable, but I want to show you what happens just after that parable of the sower, where Jesus sort of stays in the agricultural example, because last night we talked about the parable of the sower. That's an ag example. That's a gardening example. That sower casts the seed into the earth. Jesus stays in that agricultural vein when he gives us the parable of the wheat and the tares. And I want to move into that parable this morning and talk about it for a little bit because it strikes me that some of these parables we never preach. We only reference them. Like, for instance, I don't know how many times, if ever in my life, I've preached the wheat and the tares uh, because it's one of those parables that seem to complement a lot of other things in the Bible, but we don't focus on them. And just as last night I told you that sometimes what we have to do is try to act as if we don't know how the story ends, the parable of the wheat and the tares, we probably actually don't know how it ends because it's far less common. But it's also very much like the parable of the sower in that Jesus gives an ag example. He lays it out, boom, 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 one point at a time, almost in rapid fire, and he doesn't explain anything. And then he moves on to something else. And then in private, he explains it line by line to his disciples, almost exactly what he does with the parable of the sower. And I think that if we can dig into what Jesus is saying, we're going to find some amazing truths that I think are going to help. And as I've done each of these services, uh, and, and you kind of learn my style and my custom, I really like to try to land on a singular thought so that you leave with a thought, not a bunch of thoughts, but one thought that you can really wrap your mind around and wrestle with maybe the rest of the day, maybe the rest of the week. And I like that to be a, to, to center on Jesus and his finished work and his love and his grace. But I really want to land today in how do we deal with an evil world? Because the world around us is most definitely wicked. There's wickedness on every hand. You don't have to turn on the news to find wickedness. But if you turn on the news, you're going to find some wickedness. Everywhere you look in the world, evil is abundant. And that causes people to believe that the world is getting worse not getting better. In fact, in most of our gospel circles, one of the real telltale signs of quote-unquote true ministry is pointing out how bad the world is, pointing out how dark the darkness is, how bleak the sin is. And it's very popular. You can get a lot of amens if you just get up in most churches and say, hey, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's worse right now than it's ever been. And it just tells me that God's about to do his work and come down here. And man, you can get everybody fired up over blackness and darkness and bleakness and hopelessness. People get excited over evil. I mean, it's amazing. You can get up and tell them God loves you. Jesus finished the work. He died, went to the tomb, rose from the dead, ascended, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And you'll get a couple meek amens. Praise God. But man, you get up and point out who the Antichrist might be and how hell is winning and people are demon-possessed and alcoholism and drug addiction and, and all that sexual impurities running rampant. And they'll be running the aisles in excitement. And they'll say it's because they anticipate that God's going to come back and win and do something big. My, my reality is I, I'm not so sure we're excited about God coming back and doing something big. I, I think sometimes we're just excited to hear about darkness. We just, we just kind of get infatuated with all the filth and garbage that goes on in the world. And I, and I think that there is an element of, yeah, man, if it's dark, that means God's going to go bruise some heads. He's going to come down here and beat some people up. And I don't know if that says as much about the world as it does about us. I mean, we're the ones all pumped up and excited about the world, quote unquote, going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, right. 
It ought not excite us. Maybe it ought to bring us to tears. Maybe it ought to bring us to sobriety. Maybe it ought to bring us to the necessary adjustment to the gospel to say, what are we going to do in a darkened world? How are we going to present a living Jesus, a loving Jesus to a world so in need? So I I know that the common consensus is it's getting worse. Everything's getting bad. I'm here to counter that a little bit. I don't actually believe it's getting worse. I believe the kingdom of God wins. It's winning and it wins. And I believe that there has always been an attack against goodness. That's the Genesis story. In the middle of your paradise is a snake. God wants to show you in the book of Genesis that there is no such thing as paradise that doesn't have the presence of snakes. Snakes that are wise and will talk you into the bad thing. Paradise is not the absence of evil. Paradise is not the absence of the opportunity of evil. Paradise is the presence of an evil that you know how to resist because you eat from the right tree. If you could get that in your spirit, then you might be able to look at a world full of darkness and say, this might be the best time to be alive, not the worst time to be alive. And why is that? So to to really dig into that, I want to take you to Matthew 13, 24. And I want to read for you the beginning of the parable that Jesus gives that we call the wheat and the tares. But I don't yet want to read the interpretation. I want to do it much like we did the parable from last night. I want to read it the way Jesus presents it, sort of bullet fire points of just this agricultural illustration. And then we'll run into the meaning in just a little bit. Another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Tares, by the way is a word we don't really use much. So I just want to stop right here and illustrate this before we give Jesus's definition of what the tares are. We don't even understand the word tares, but that would be closer to our word for weed or a wild grass. All right. And so I just want to explain that so that there's, we're not lost. Some things get lost in translation easily. That's one of them. And so someone comes in and sows weeds among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, Then the tares or the weeds or the wild grass also appeared. And by the way, there is a reference in the the Greek syntax that this weed is actually a weed that looks much like wheat. So it's very indistinguishable from the wheat. It's not just a grass that's opposite of the wheat. It's a grass that looks much like the wheat. Very hard to tell the difference between the wheat and the tare. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go out and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, I didn't give you any much interpretation other than to try to explain the word tares, which is a little bit lost on us in modern English. So tried to clean that up a little bit. I didn't give you any theological interpretation to this parable. Some of it kind of seems straightforward and obvious, and you might be jogging your good old Bible memory now and remembering this story and where this story ends. But I just want to present a little bit of our interpretations before we get into Jesus's interpretation. And some of our interpretation is that we always kind of land at the end of this and get excited about the moment when the reapers come to separate the wheat and the tares. And a lot of these moments when we hear stories about the good next to the bad, the wheat next to a weed, all we think about is the end of the story in which the weeds finally get what's coming to them. And so our interpretation sort of jumps to the end of the story so that we can celebrate the darkness, so that we can say, hey, the world's going bad, but but God's going to come and do something good in the middle of the wheat and the tare story. I want you to know that in some ways, this text is partly fulfilled. I do believe this is an eschatological text. 
Eschatology is a big theology word that means last days. So when you hear someone say, what's your eschatology? That means what's your theory about how this thing ends, right? Which, by the way, is a huge topic in almost every church. How's this thing end? And that's, we talk about how this thing ends way more than we talk about beginnings. I mean, it's like we are obsessed with the end in the church. I, I, and, and, but a lot of what we're calling the end when we read the New Testament was the end to the system they were living in in that day. And so in some ways, parables like the wheat and the tares had their fulfillment at the end of the Mosaic age in which the old Mosaic economy called the law passed away. The temple came down and with it, sacrificial systems came down and the priestly system came down and the entire mosaic system came down and all we're left with is Christ is the only one left on the field. And so in some ways, these are scriptures that have their fulfillment in our past, but the presence of the principles in the story are not in our past. They are very much in our present. And here's how we know. Because there's evil in the world. Because there are weeds among our wheat. There are still presence in the, on the planet that shows us that it's not all good. Again, you don't have to look very far to figure out that it's not all good. And so therefore, a parable like the wheat and the tares makes a lot of sense. It also shows us that some things are just out of our control. God, in the story, the, the master of the field plants good wheat and then something else comes in and plants the weeds. And so this story lets us know that not everything is our fault and not everything is in our control. Sometimes we like to put guilt on the church and to say that if we were doing our job, if you were fasting enough or praying enough or the church was as powerful as they should be, there wouldn't be any sin in your town. You wouldn't have this crime problem you have. We love to say stuff like, you want to know why our kids are running the streets? You want to know why they're drug addicts? It's because they can't find hope in the church. The parable of the wheat and the tares says otherwise. You plant good wheat in the field, something comes along and plants weeds. I don't care how much you fast. I don't care how much you pray. I don't care how powerful your sermons are. There's just going to be bad stuff happening in the world. Now, that's not a cop-out to say, well, the church, forget it. Who cares? I mean, the, the devil's going to do what he does anyway. But it's also to take a little bit of the stress off of you. You are not to meant to change the world. I know we love world-changer language. We love it in the church. We love to say, hey, come on in here. We'll make you world-changers. You, you know what world you are in charge of changing? Yours. The one you live in. Change your relationship. Change your marriage. Change the way you think. Change your body. Change your mind. Change your attitude. Change your discipline. You can't change your neighbors. You probably can't change your kids. But you can change yours. So get busy. If you don't do that, that's on you. But you don't change the city, you don't change the state, you don't change the country, and you don't change the culture. And the wheat and the tares tells you that no matter how good you sow wheat, somebody's going to come along and sow some weeds. So relax a little bit. It's not your job to change the entire world around you. And so that leads us to a question, what do we do in a world full of tares? How do we function in a world full of wheat? How do we respond. And that leads us to the Jesus interpretation, or at least it leads us back rather into some of the questions. And I want to take you, first of all, to read the latter part of the story so that we understand who Jesus slots in these categories. Then we want to go back and ask the questions asked in the middle of the story. So go to verse 36, because Jesus is going to explain the parable. And I want Jesus to explain it because it kind of goes without saying he's going to do a much better job than I will. Verse 36, Jesus sent the multitude away, he went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, the field is the world, the good seeds are the Son of the Kingdom, but the tares are the son of the wicked. When I want to stop right there and make a comparison, remember last night we told you that in the parable of the sower, Jesus explained it, that the, the seed is the word. And we showed you that in, according to the New Testament, the word is Jesus. Therefore, in the parable of the sower, Jesus is what is planted in the world. 
But in the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus changes the cast of characters. It's still an agricultural illustration, but he changes who is what because he has that prerogative. If you're going to use an illustration, you get to make it mean what you need for it to mean. So in the parable of the wheat and the tares, he says the good, the one who actually does the sowing is Jesus, the Son of Man. And what he plants in the world, the field, are good seeds. And what are good seeds? Verse 38, sons of the kingdom. But tares are sons of the wicked one. And so in the story of the wheat and the tares, the wheat, that which is produced by the hand of Jesus, becomes the, the inhabitants of the kingdom of God. And the weeds, that which is planted by, according to verse 39, the enemy sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. So the enemy comes in and sows the weeds, which are the children of this world, which is the wickedness and the darkness of this world, which grows right up next to the good. And therefore, in verse 40, the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that last part really gets us excited. That's what we preach most of the time, which is at the end of the age, the son of man is going to send his angels and he's going to cast into the furnace of fire where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. All the people that practice lawlessness, those tares, those weeds are finally going to get what's coming to them. And we sort of with a smug smile, knowing that we're going to win in the end, close our Bibles and go to lunch. Because the reality is, is, no matter what's going on in the world, we win, they lose, they're all going to burn in hell, and we're going to make it home, and boy, let's go eat some chicken. <laughs> it's kind of how we land on some of these stories. Like, like, I don't know all the details, I don't understand what Jesus is trying to say, so let's just jump to the end, because in the end, the angels come down here, they take all the bad people away, and in the end, everybody that's bad is going to burn, and everybody that's good is going to shine forth like the sons of righteousness in the land of their father, and I know which one I am, and I'm pretty sure which one you are, and so let's just move forward. And, then, and that doesn't require anything of us. Now, I want to I pose a little something to you before we really dig in. Why is it that Jesus doesn't reveal that interpretation until he's in private with his disciples? Doesn't it seem like he should have revealed that in public to all the tares, to all the weeds? It seems like he should have turned in the, at the end of his little illustration in public, not private, and said, pay attention, weeds. You're going to get it. You're all in trouble. You think you're winning this battle now, but the, the bad news for you is my dad's watching and he's got harvesters and he's going to come and he's going to take you out. And when he takes you out, he's going to burn you up in a furnace and my dad's going to win. But he doesn't do that. To the public, he gives a story with no real explanation. It's only to his disciples that he gives the details of the story. However, he does give the single most important answers to the story. This, to me, fascinates me about the wheat and the tares. The biggest part of it, the meatiest part of it, is the part we miss because it's the part he doesn't give the interpretation to. We run to the end where he explains it. Because it's much easier for me to tell you what's on the test than for you to study for the test. Right? You go, I got to take this test. And I go, well, I've already taken it. You go, give me the answers. I go, well, I could help you study. Forget that. Who needs to be helped study? You already know what's on the test. So why go dig into the story and learn anything if Jesus explains it in private? There's a reason he didn't explain it in public. There's a few things inside the opening description of the story that hold the key to what's going on in the story and, I think, what's going on in the world today. And so, for purposes of this study, I don't really want to focus on Jesus' private interpretation to the disciples. You already get that. In fact, the part that fires us up is everything's going to burn in fire and he's going to, you know, we're going to shine like the sun. I want to focus on why he didn't tell that to the public. And I want to focus on what he actually did say to the public that we miss. And we miss it. Some of it's because of translation. We're going to work with that. Some of it's because we're just so blasted excited to find out who wins. Like we can't read the story and get the information we need. We just want to find out who wins. Not really. We just want to find out who loses. I mean, we're pretty sure we win. 
We just want to figure out who we get to throw in the furnace. And so Jesus doesn't bother with that in the public sphere because there's some things he's saying in this story that are absolutely essential to our understanding. So I want to ask a couple key questions because the servants actually ask a couple of key questions. Go back in Matthew chapter 13. And let's focus in verse 27 where the servants of the owner come and say to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does your field have tares? And so I want to ask two questions that are posed by the servants in the front part of the story. And question number one, how are these tares? That's not a question that makes a lot of sense to us, but it might if I said it this way. What's the nature of evil? Why is there so much darkness in the world? Now that's a good question, right? That's what his servants ask. How'd, these, we, how'd the tares get in here? I mean, if you're planting a kingdom, why are there weeds in the kingdom? Now, by the way, the fact that there are weeds in the kingdom does not make any one of these servants believe it's not dad's field. They still believe it's their master's field. Notice at the top of the parable, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man that sows seed in his field. And then at night, someone comes in and sows weeds. The kingdom of heaven is like that. I don't mean a place called heaven. I mean the kingdom of God that you live in. Notice that the kingdom of God has weeds in it. Let me just slow down there and make sure we comprehend the things that are being laid out for us in this parable because it's quite remarkable. The kingdom of God is not a place just over in the glory land. The kingdom of God is the presence of the wheat. You are the sons of the kingdom. That's what Jesus said. The servants are shocked because the kingdom of God should be full of wheat. Right? Right. But what's in the field in the kingdom of God? Wheat and weeds. And the servants look at the master and go, something's not right. Here's how we say it. I know because I've preached the kingdom all over the world and I get this response. This is the kingdom? This is the kingdom? And you want to know why we say that? Because there's weeds. And we look at the world and we go, if this was the kingdom of God, I can tell you these people wouldn't be getting by with this mess. If this was the kingdom of God, they wouldn't be sinning like that. If this was the kingdom of God, there wouldn't be darkness going on. If this were the kingdom of God, there wouldn't be war going on. If this were the kingdom of God, my neighbor wouldn't, this wouldn't have happened to their kid. This wouldn't have happened at work because in the kingdom of God, everything's going to be great. And yet the servants say, where'd these weeds come from? Because they're asking the same question we do. Why is there so much evil in the midst of this? If this is the kingdom of God, what's the nature of evil? What's the next verse? The master says to his servants, the enemy has sowed this. Here's the Bible's answer to why there is wickedness in the world. The enemy did it. Which always leads us to a bunch of questions. Who's the enemy? How'd he get here? Why is God letting him do what he does? When's he going to stop him? Notice how we can rapid fire off a bunch of questions about the devil. Who is he? How'd he get here? Where'd he come from? And then we create backstories like he used to be in heaven. He used to be a good musician. He got kicked out of glory. He tried to overthrow God. We got all these things, a lot of which aren't even supported by scripture, but we got all these ideas about the enemy and God never actually explains any of it. Here's God's explanation of why there's evil in the world. The enemy did it. If you go to God, who's the enemy? He goes, don't, don't concentrate on the enemy. This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Every time we start to try to focus on the enemy in the text, we get pointed to Jesus. And so the, the object of the Jesus stories is never to focus you on the darkness and the weeds, but to focus you on the Father, to focus you on the sower, to focus you on the good, and so to focus you on where you need to be so that you learn how to deal with the evil. And so the answer to the question, why is there evil in the world, is because there are enemies at work in the world, in the cosmos. There are principalities and powers of the air that fight against the presence of God. Whatever that looks like and however they got here, let's accept the fact that that exists. But let's also accept the fact that just because there's evil in the world does not mean the kingdom isn't in work because the parable of the wheat and the tares shows us that the kingdom has you and I as citizens of that kingdom growing up next to the weeds. And the next question is the crucial question because the next question is in verse 28. The servants at the end of the verse say, do you want us to go and gather them up? Do you want us to go and gather them up? Might be recast as, what do you want us to do about the evil that is on the earth? What's my job in relation to the darkness, in relation to the evil? What do you want me to do? 
do you want us to go take care of business? And this is the crucial moment in the church of Jesus Christ as far as I'm concerned. The crucial moment is not what your praise and worship is like. The crucial moment is not how you stylistically organize your services. The crucial moment is not where you locate your building relative to the prosperous or the ghetto. The crucial part of the church of Jesus Christ is how we deal with the darkness we've been planted next to or that has been planted with us. And as far as I can see, we have multiple ways of dealing with it. A lot of times how we deal with it is preach against it, curse it, work hard to stop it. There's also, of course, options that go, well, just ignore it. Act like it's not there at all. Let the church do its thing. Let the world do its thing. And that one actually, to me, is rooted in the, the reality that we know they're going to get theirs. So we go, well, just ignore it. If they happen to come to church, preach Jesus. If they don't like it, they're going to go to hell anyway. And so let them go. And so in the end, we know we win, so we don't have to deal with them much at all. It's kind of like the servant saying to the master, how'd the weeds get there? And the master goes, the enemy so goes, what do you want us to do about it? You want us to go pluck them? You want us to go get rid of them? Shall we go attack the darkness for you? Shall we go attack evil on your behalf? And what does the master say? Well, in a nutshell, no. <laughs> lest while you get, verse 29, lest while you gather up the wheats, you also uproot the wheat with them, let both grow together until the harvest. So I want to break this down into two parts. Part one, don't go gather them because if you do, you might accidentally gather the good. This leads me to a very interesting theological question. How is it that in gathering the wheat, they would accidentally gather the good? Seems pretty obvious what's dark and what's light. Or is it? You see, the tares look a lot like the wheat. You can't always tell who's good and who's evil. Jesus is sending you a very important message, one that Paul will capitalize on. Let's start with Jesus and work our way to Paul. Jesus is telling you, you don't know by looking who's in and who's out. You think you do, and you want the job of plucking up who doesn't belong. But I know that if you go out there and take it upon yourself to choose who makes it and who doesn't, you'll mess this up and pick a bunch of people that should actually go home. Wow. You think you know what darkness is, but you're not darkness experts. You're children of the light, not children of the dark. And so when you take your light to shine into dark places, you mess up because it's not in your nature to be good judges. The seed of heaven is in you, not the seed of hell. And because the seed of heaven is you, it is not in your nature to, be a, to, to identify with darkness. And therefore, if you go out to be the judge, Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged in like manner. Here's the danger of judgment. Whatever you spew out gets brought right back to you. How many of you grew up hearing the following verse used during offering time? If you give, it shall be given back to you, pressed down, shaken together, <laughs> running over, shall men give into your bosom. How many of you heard that verse about every time you took up the offering? Okay, and then how did we, why were we saying that? Well, because it makes a lot of sense, right? Give, 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 and God's going to give, give, give to you. So if you give a bunch of money, get ready. God's going to exponentially give you more than you gave him. Press down, shaking together, shall men give into your bosom. But nobody ever reads the whole passage when they take up the offering. Because the whole passage undermines the message. Because the whole passage ain't about money. Jesus actually says this, forgive and you'd be forgiven. Show mercy, and mercy will be shown to you. Be gracious, and grace will come back to you. Give, and men will give unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It ain't money, it's whatever you give. So if you're hateful, how's the world treat you? That's Jesus' point. And so he says, what you put out there will be much of what you return. And therefore, we're not good at judging. We are just good at giving. Giving is our nature. 
We give. So when we judge, we are givers of judgment. And we've already put ourselves into a kingdom principle. What we give comes back in spades, pressed down, shaken together, running over. This is why the church fails when it becomes experts at pointing out darkness. Because we're supposed to be a, a, a place where people can receive the goodness of God as given out by us as sowers. And instead, when we give judgment instead of mercy, when we give the spotting of darkness instead of the spreading of light, what comes back to us is a darkness that overwhelms and causes us to say the world's worse than it's ever been. We're going to hell in a handbasket. It's because we have made ourselves judges where the judgment does not belong to us. So God says, no, don't go pluck up the weeds. You're not good enough to know which ones are weeds. Paul said it this way. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, we have made a conclusion that if one man died, all men died. Okay, that alone will preach. Let me say it again. Paul said this, if one man died, Jesus, all men died. If one man died, Jesus, how many people died in Jesus? Just Christians? Just believers in Christ or everybody? Everybody. Now I'm preaching, this is Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15, 16, 17, just running on down through 21. One of the most powerful passages Paul ever put pen to paper. Here's my conclusion, he goes, The love of Christ compels me that if one man died, all men died. Why does the love of Christ compel me? Because it must have been God dying for everybody. It couldn't be God dying for just somebody. The love of Christ is too big to die for just somebody. The love of Christ must have died for everybody. Paul goes, so thus I conclude that if one man died, all men died. And therefore, listen to this one. And therefore, from now on, we judge nobody according to the flesh. Why is that his next line? Because if Christ died as everybody, how do you get to judge anybody? That's Paul's question. If Christ died as everybody, who are you to judge anybody? Shouldn't Christ, the one who died, be the one who determines who gets judged? Which the author of Hebrews agrees with. Because the author of Hebrews says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. What I don't get to do is decide which one's wheat and which one's weed. Which one's the tear, which one's good, which one's bad, which one's positive. I don't get to do that. It's not my job. I am off limits of determining which ones of you know Jesus. Which ones of you have the Holy Spirit? Which ones of you walk close to him? I'm glad I'm not the arbiter of what is evil. And what is good. When man swoops in to stop what is evil, he kills everything in the path. We call this collateral damage. We actually are okay in American culture with collateral damage. Innocent people die so that bad people get caught in the net. When Jesus tells the story of the wheat and the tares, if it were us asking, we would have probably countered and said, wouldn't it be worth it? to pull a little wheat if we get a bunch of weeds. I'm not qualified to tell what is weed, weeds, and I'm certainly not qualified to tell which of the wheat deserve to die so that I can catch the evil. Do we realize how important people are to the the Father? That's part of the essence of this story. How important all of them are. See, it's easy for me to read this story and go, boy, God really cares about that wheat. He cares about that wheat so much, he doesn't want you to pull up the tares lest you pull up some wheat. And if that's the way you think, you're missing the point. I think he cares about the weeds. As much as he cares about the wheat. Let them grow side by side, he says. I don't know, maybe... The wheat might have an effect on the weed. You're so worried about the weed having an effect on the wheat. How do you know that the good won't have an effect on the evil? Isn't that the way the kingdom's supposed to work? 
Rather than always running away, he says, let them grow up among. And then comes what is easy to miss. And this is why I told you a few moments ago that I want to concentrate my effort on what happens inside the first story rather than what happens inside the interpretation because there's a moment here inside the front story that's nestled in the Greek. And I'm no Greek scholar, but I think we all realize that the Bible wasn't written in English, right? Okay, I didn't get any initial amens. I just wanted to make sure. Okay, the Bible, was, <laughs> the Bible was not written in English. It certainly wasn't written in 17th century King's English. It was written for the most part the Old Testament in Hebrew and for the most part the New Testament in Greek, which within itself was quite a marvel because very few people in the New Testament world actually spoke Greek. In Jesus' world, they spoke Aramaic. It's very likely that Jesus did not speak Greek, though he might have been able to read Greek from the Septuagint because the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. By the way, that occurred over 100 years before Christ. And by the time of Christ, it's likely that no one was reading the original Hebrew. They were reading translated Greek. This is why, by the way, when you read in the New Testament and they'll quote the Old Testament, it doesn't look like the Old Testament. You'll go back and read it in your Bible, like in Isaiah, and, it, and it'll say one thing, and then you'll come and read it in Hebrews, and it'll say another. And you go, boy, they misquoted. They were reading from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Your Bible is translated from the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, and therefore there's a little crossover. When you start to do this over and over, and the only way to copy the Bible is scribes reading it out loud to other scribes and them writing it down, you're going to get words that get lost in translation. You're also going to get words because one of the first ways we went from Greek was not Greek to English, but Greek to Latin. And Latin became the readable and writable version of the Bible for hundreds of years throughout the Middle Ages. And as scribes translated from Greek to Latin, and then they copied Latin to Latin and Latin to Latin and Latin to Latin, words get shifted, they start to change, they start to sound different, until finally somewhere around the 16th century, we start to put the Bible from Latin to English. And we do the best we can because Latin, even at that point, is a dying language. You're, you've got a dying language written off of a dead language translated off of an even deader language and we're trying to bring life into it in the fourth generation and and now it feels kind of silly to argue for one translation over the other doesn't it you, you kind of realize that we're a long way from the source no matter where we start and so what we have to do is dig and wrestle and mine and listen to the holy spirit that's your best bet you go, no, you ought to buy Brother So-and-So's Bible. Okay, well, good luck with that, because I promise you somewhere in Brother So-and-So's Bible, he's got a footnote that goes, here's what this word means. Because even Brother or Sister So-and-So knows we're still working to get to the original. Here's something fascinating. Look at this in, in, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 30. The master's response to the servants who say, let... He says, no, lest you gather the tares, you'll uproot the wheat. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them and gather the wheat into my barn. So it's the reapers, it's the harvest, it's the angel's job to do the work of separating what is wheat and tares. But I want you to notice that little bitty phrase at the front of verse 30. It seems really insignificant. Let both grow together. Some of your translations will say, leave them alone. Some of them will say, um, they'll have some version of hands off. Okay. The Greek word that is used here for let is the, is the verb aphemi and aphemi appears almost 160 times in the new Testament. Here's what's phenomenal to me. The translators use the word let, let both grow together until the harvest, but aphemi over a third of the time in the New Testament is translated as forgive. In this passage, the translators left the word forgive out because there's a connotation in the Greek with forgive that is hands off. By taking your hands off, you're offering forgiveness because if you put your hands on, you'll judge. So by taking your hands off, you're offering forgiveness. In Matthew 13, 30, when the master says to the servants, let them grow next to the wheat, the Greek reference is, and I know why the translators left this word out, because it's almost too much for us to handle. You ready? No, don't pull them up. 
Forgive them. Let's try it again. No, don't pull up the weeds. You're not qualified to figure out which ones are weeds. Forgive them. Let dad take care of it in the last day. What's that mean? That means Jesus has nails put in his hands and his feet. And he's lifted up above the earth. And the first words out of his mouth, Father. And he conjugates the same Greek verb, aphemi, Father. If we had translated, you know what's next. I haven't said it yet. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. If we had translated it there the way they did in Matthew 13, he would have said this nonsensical thing on the cross. Father, let them be. Wouldn't have had the effect, but it's the same thing. Father, don't step down here and crush them like a bug. Let them be. Let them be gets translated. Father, forgive them. I kind of wish they had done it in Matthew 13. Where the master of the field goes, you want to know how to handle the weeds? Forgive them. What scares us when we start to say this is people are actually afraid in the modern church of forgiveness. Now, I know that doesn't get a huge response because you don't really believe me. You think I'm just trying to be clever. But the reality is, is I think we're scared to let people know they're forgiven. Because we're always afraid that if people know they're forgiven, they'll sin like crazy. Like people are just waiting for an excuse to go nuts and sin like maniacs. And the only thing holding them back is that they're scared of going to hell and not being forgiven of their sins. And if they could be forgiven of their sins and they knew it, they'd go ahead and do anything wrong because we love the little statement, it's, better to, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. See, we all knew that. Yeah. It's, it's, we say that so much, it's almost like it's in the book of Proverbs. <laughs> you, know, you know, Bible says, easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission. <laughs> and most of us know our Bible so poorly that if a preacher got up and said it just right, we'd amen it. You know, the Bible says it's easier to ask for forgiveness and permission. We go, amen. I'm going to put that, I'm going to get that tattooed on my arm. What's the chapter and verse to that, brother? Can we sell bumper stickers that say that chapter and verse? The reason why that resonates so largely with us is because we, we believe that at, a, at sort of our core, but we resent it when it comes to the gospel. We resent the idea of forgiveness unless people do penance, right? We love forgiveness. We love forgiving people in the American culture. We just love to see them really sorry first. Like, we'll forgive you for anything, but you got to act like you're hurting over it. You know, you get caught doing something in social media, you got to come out and apologize to everybody and sort of disappear for three months and come back real repentant. If you do that, boy, we'll let you run for office. I mean, we'll put you in the White House. It doesn't matter. As long as you got something that you can say, I'm sorry for, we're glad to forgive. But boy, you better say, I'm sorry. You better pay that price. You better spend some money. You better spend a little sweat equity. You better do what it takes to find forgiveness. And what's interesting is, is you do not see Jesus playing this game when he's on the earth. He comes into a house. It's jam-packed. He's preaching the gospel. The roof starts to fall apart. They lower a paralytic boy in front of him because he couldn't get through the front door. It's too packed. And as they lower the, front, the, the paralytic boy in front of him, Jesus, without ever asking the guy one question, says, son, your sins are forgiven. The guy didn't ask for forgiveness. The guy didn't pray. The guy didn't show himself repentant. We don't even know if the kid's conscious. Son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody in the room loses their mind. You know why? Because we would lose our mind. Because you don't just say to people unsolicited, your sins are forgiven. Right. They got to ask for it, right? Yeah. They got to ask for it. They got to pay for it. They got to whine. They got to grovel. They got to repent. They got to lay in the carpet. They got to show themselves humble. You can't just say to somebody that his sins be forgiven. How do you know this kid's not just going to, not only does he forgive his sins, then he heals him. Right. Jesus goes, so that you know the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, sunrise, take up your bed and walk. The kid gets up and walks out. He doesn't become a disciple. He doesn't start a church. He doesn't evangelize China. He just walks out. He was given forgiveness and he didn't even ask for it. Oh, it gets worse. 
Jesus is just minding his own business, doodling in the sand. And they bring a woman to him that's half naked, caught in the act of adultery, and throw him at his feet, throw her at his feet. And they say, Moses says we ought to stone her to death. What do you think? And you know what? They're right. I've looked it up. Moses did say they ought to stone her to death. A woman caught in the act of adultery is to be taken outside the city gates and stoned until she is dead. And they throw her at Jesus' feet and go, what do you think we ought to do? And the correct biblical answer is, stone her. And Jesus doodles in the sand, listens to his father, and says, he without sin among you cast the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, they drop the rocks and they walk away. And Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, are you really, 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 really sorry for this? You, you took a second, didn't you? Because you went, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? No, he looks at the woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? They're the only reason that you're here, are your accusers. Here's what I hear Jesus saying. Woman, why are you still here? Because woman, where are your accusers? You didn't come here to hear a camp meeting sermon. You're only here because people are going to kill you. So why are you still here? She goes, I have no accusers, Lord. I think he smiles there. She's here because Jesus is here. That's the same reason, by the way, the paralytic boy was here. And Jesus goes, well, then neither do I condemn thee. Now go and sin no more. Neither do. I don't have any condemnation for you. Yes, Lord, but Moses said I should be stoned to death. I actually did the crime. Shouldn't I do the time? And Jesus goes, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You see, the power to stop the foolishness is forgive them. Why does Jesus say, don't gather the weeds? Instead, forgive them. Let dad sort it out in the end. Because the only hope the weed has is forgiveness by the wheat. You are the answer in the field. It's not your job to pluck weeds. It's your job to forgive them. Right. You do actually have a job in the kingdom. Yeah. Do you know that? You have a grace job yeah. in the kingdom. It's to show forth the love of the Father who loved you. Yeah. We forgive, Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter 4, we forgive as Christ as God forgave us for Christ's sake. Right. We don't forgive because they repent. We forgive because they're human. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I'm struck when I read Jesus. This is why I encourage you to read Jesus. Because as you read Jesus, he'll blow all your preconceived notions about yes, theology out of the water. Yes, Jesus walks, is the walking and talking embodiment of God, and in it He loves, and in it He shares the heart of His Father, and in it He says, forgive. What I love about the parable of the wheat and the tares is not that I'm wheat and all the weeds are going to burn someday. I used to love that. I used to love that part of this parable. I go, you know what I love about that wheat and tares? Man, we win in the end. This world's going to burn in hell. God's going to do... Jesus throws that part in at the very end in private to his disciples. Now, I know it's not private because it's in your Bible, right? We all get it. And he knew we would all get it. But when he's talking to the public in his day, he doesn't bother to tell them how the world ends. Because the heart of God is not, I don't believe, based on the stories of Jesus, the heart of God is not the explanation to the world of how it all goes down. It's the explanation of how Jesus goes down into the earth and raises up in the newness of life so that you can experience heaven on the earth. Heaven comes down to us. The great hermeneutical key possibly of the Bible is Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because Father, forgive them. They know not what they do is not what you say when your enemies kill you. It's the opposite of what you say when your enemies kill you. You say, get them back. Avenge me, Dad. Do you want to know why the Bible tells you that the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel? The book of Hebrews says the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Why? Because the blood of Abel is screaming, avenge me. Cain kills Abel and Cain says to God, everywhere I go, people are going to want to kill me. How does Cain know that? Instantaneously in the human response is vengeance. The second Cain kills Abel, he goes, "Uh uh-oh. Everywhere I go, people are going to want to kill me because that's our nature. 
He figured that out in a heartbeat. And God marks him with mercy so that those can't kill him. And there's this downward spiral in the system of man in which reciprocity makes us feel better. The only way we're going to feel better about it is if somebody pays, somebody bleeds, somebody dies. The blood of Jesus hits the same earth as the blood of Abel. When it drips off of Calvary, it hits the dirt. It's a second Adam's blood to pay for the loss of the first Adam. Where Cain's spills Abel's blood and Abel's blood screams vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. Jesus' blood hits the earth and screams avenged. Avenged. And let that blood do the work. Let that blood go to work to do the work. The heart of our Father was never, I, and I'm going to say this in closing. This is the kind of thing you, you got you to close on because this will be one you need to chew on, all right? Um, we read the Old Testament. And I think we dealt with this a little bit when we were here in December, but it's a good place to stop. We read the Old Testament where God allows Israel an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's vengeance. You break my arm, I break your arm. In the name of God. Right? That's in the Bible. What you don't realize is that that was actually pulling the fences in on the reciprocity of humanity because humanity is not you break my arm, I break yours. What's humanity? You break my arm, I break every bone in your body so you never break my arm again. Right? That's humanity. That's natural. Now, I know it's funny, but it's true. Think about it. That's our, that's our whole response system. We, we, we run that baby right up the flagpole all the way to the American military. You strike us, we'll blow you off the map so that you don't get to strike our children. Right? You hit me, I don't hit you back. I burn your house down so that your kids can't hit me back. And we call that a good movie. Right? Okay. That's sort of what we do with the message of the gospel. That's right. You ignore God, He'll burn you in hell forever. Because He doesn't just pay you back by ignoring you, which He could do because He's God. He actually just crushes you soullessly for all of time and eternity because God in the end actually decides to do things the way the world does it. Right. Or does He? See, you got to be wrestling that stuff out. you got to be at least taking that baby to the mat and dropping an elbow on it once in a while. It's your job. You are the new Israel, the new contenders with God. you got to at least wrestle these big truths out. you got to at least talk about them. And so God brings in the law. And He goes, okay, here's the way the Philistines do it. Hit a Philistine, he'll kill your kids. Right. We don't do things that way. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They hit you, you get to hit them back. And Israel, we think they were excited. I know we, I think we think they went, ooh, you get to live in a world. You hit me, I hit you back. I think they were mad. You mean I got to live in a world where I can only do to you what you do to me? And then comes Jesus. You have heard it said, and eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if a man smites you on the cheek, turn to him your other one also. Now you think you hated the first rule? How are you going to like that next one? Now, why did I bring this up? Because what Jesus is doing is showing you what the heart of his father always was. The heart of his father was never eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Because if you live in a world where it's eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, eventually you end up with no teeth and no eyes. So Jesus shows you the heart of the father and says, turn the other cheek. What is turn the other cheek if not forgive what is unforgivable? That's Jesus. And that's why when they hang him above earth and his blood drops to the dirt and saturates Abel's blood, his blood speaks better things. And the better things is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I think there's a dual interpretation. There's probably more than that, but there's two for my, that settle my spirit. One, Father, we're going to have to forgive them because not forgiving them isn't working. Not forgiving them, 
they're guilty and condemned and bitter and they just sin over and over and over and over again because here's what happens to us. I'm already done anyway. Who cares? I might as well go ahead and... Right? Isn't that our attitude? I already screwed up. Might as well just go ahead and screw up some more. I mean, I already messed this thing up. I mean, who cares? I already did wrong. Might as well just go ahead and do wrong. Doing wrong is my only hope. The only way I'm going to get out of this, just do more wrong. Already messed it up. Might as well mess it up more. Burn the whole house down. Just build a new one. Just finish this marriage off. Finish this relationship off. Finish this debt off. Finish this thing off. Just go ahead and burn the whole thing down and start over. That's what happens when we live in perpetual guilt. If we're not forgiven, why not just go ahead and burn the whole thing down? That's right. Right? And we wonder why the darkness keeps getting darker. They go, well, if we're going to hell, we might as well go down swinging. So if, if we're already messed up, then we might as well just mess up some more. Like, who really cares? There's no real parameter anyway. And so the first reason Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, is because if they don't get forgiven, we're really in trouble. But the second reason, and this one helps me sleep at night, more than even than that one. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Dad, for 33 years I've been a human, and it ain't easy we got to forgive them. Being human's hard. It's one thing to be God, to set above it. So God put on an earth suit and became a man so he would know how hard it is. And when he went to the cross, he said, Dad, we got to forgive them. It ain't easy being them. It helps me sleep at night because I know God knows how hard it is to be me. I know we think about that opposite. Ooh, how hard it would be to be God. But God knows how hard it is to be you. Because let me tell you, everything you went through, He went through with you. Every abuse, every neglect, every molestation, every imprisonment, every addiction, every bondage, He went through it with you. So that He could say, Father, forgive them. It ain't easy being them. You know what? You are wheat. Beautiful product of the sowing of our Lord Jesus. But you live in, among, and sometimes look like weeds. And I'm not here to pluck the weed. I'm here to show you that God loves you. That Christ has forgiven you. In the end, God sorts it all out. It ain't my job. My job is to keep my hands off the weeds. And show them how much the Father loves them. So that the Father does the work, not me. Church, you can't save them. But you know the one who can. Your role is to keep loving them until they believe it. That's your role. Love them until they believe it. Love them until they receive it. I didn't say everyone in the world has accepted the forgiveness of their sins. Because the truth is they haven't, and you know it. Shoot, I don't think I've even accepted all of the forgiveness of my sins. It's why I carry guilt, shame, and condemnation sometimes. And it's also why I spiral into more sin. Because in some way, I still don't realize He has set me free. It's why I need reminded over and over again, Hey, Paul, God loves you too. God loves you if you don't preach this week. God loves you if you forget to read your Bible. God loves you if you don't make it to church. Oh, I'd love for you to do all of those things. I get to meet you there. I get to say things to you there. I say things to you when you're preaching. I say things to you when you're in the Word. I say things to you when you're around your brothers and sisters. But I don't love you less. I don't forgive you less. Where iniquity doth abound, grace doth much more abound. Paul knew the rebuttal. Shall we continue in sin then so that more grace would abound? He goes, God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin continue any longer therein? Because in other words, wherever you fail, you can know that God's grace is greater than your failure. But knowing that God's grace is greater than your failure is never going to lead you to want to fail more to get more grace. Not if you really know you're the wheat. What a fun weekend we've had. Shining a light on Jesus. Your heart encouraged. What's the nature of evil? There's an enemy in the world. How do we deal with it? Let God sort them out. Forgive them and love them in the meantime. And by let God sort them out, I don't mean stack them like cordwood and burn them forever. Because sometimes that's how we look. God, we'll knock them down, let God sort them out. No, we'll love them. 
Let God sort out who we are and let God sort out who they are. That's the wheat and the tares. That's encouraging. That's not just walking out here going, boy, I can't wait till they get theirs. That's walking out here and going, let me find somebody I can forgive today. Let me find somebody I can love today. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for this weekend and this wonderful chance. The great privilege of sharing good news with your children. I have no idea who is wheat and who is tares in this room. Not my job. What I do is let it be. That's what you said in the text. Let them be. Really, forgive them. So I offer exactly, Father, I believe, what you offer. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If there's a man, woman, boy, girl in this room that knows that they have something to be forgiven for, then, Father, may they pick up forgiveness. It's theirs. They can have it. They can walk out of here and know that God loves them. And as that revelation becomes real, then, Father, I believe they walk away from that which identified them with the enemy. All of us need that. Even us wheat May we receive that in Jesus' name. And may we not only receive it, but may we be givers of that in Jesus' name. And everyone that receives his forgiveness said, Amen and Amen. Pastor Jamie, God bless you, church. We love you.